Welcome to the New Legal Realism Podcast. The New Legal Realism Project promotes rigorous and genuinely interdisciplinary scholarship on law in action. This is the third podcast in our series in which we are interviewing scholars who contributed to the two-volume series on New Legal Realism, which was recently published by Cambridge University Press. On our previous podcast, we heard from Heinz Klug, who co-edited the second volume on studying law globally. And today we'll be hearing from Sally Engel-Mary, who co-edited Studying Law Globally and co-authored the introduction to that volume as well. Sally Engel-Mary is Silver Professor of Anthropology at New York University. She is also Faculty Director of the Center for Human Rights and Global Justice at the New York University School of Law and past president of the American Ethnological Society. She is the author or editor of 15 books and special journal issues. In 2002, she received the Hearst Prize for her book, Colonizing Hawaii. In 2007, she received the Calvin Prize for scholarly contributions to socio-legal scholarship. And in 2010, she received the J.I. Stanley Prize for her book, Human Rights and Gender Violence. In 2013, she received an honorary degree from McGill School of Law and was the focus of an author colloquium at the Center for Interdisciplinary Research at the University of Bielefeld, Germany. And finally, she is an honorary professor at Australian National University. This interview was conducted by leading legal anthropologist, Beth Mertz. This is Beth Mertz, and today I have the pleasure of interviewing Sally Engel-Mary, who is a very famous anthropologist and also is here today to talk to us a little bit about new legal realism and her project on indicators, which is breaking the kind of ground that new legal realism has hoped that social sciences could break. Um, So Sally, welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be here, and it's really nice to have a chance to talk about new legal realism and really the promise it has both for socio-legal studies and also for the law schools. And it, it really represents a return to the kinds of social science thinking that was characteristic of legal realism and bringing it back into the curriculum of the law schools today. And I have found in my own work collaborating with law professors how really valuable a social science perspective can be in understanding how law works. And so that's not necessarily something that's widely acknowledged or absorbed in the law school world. Well, I think that's probably true. I found parts of the law school are much more open to this than others. Mm -hmm. Uh, Right now, I'm a faculty co-director of the Center for Human Rights and Global Justice at NYU Law. And it seems clear to me that human rights is a field where the social science perspective is really recognized and valued because human rights is, in fact, a form of law that is very much embedded in social relationships. The impact of human rights depends on how people pick up and use these ideas, and it's a really good site to do this. I've also collaborated with faculty in the international law um, field, where, again, the problems of legal regulation are really similar to and linked up to problems of social regulation. And these are two areas that I think benefit enormously from a social science perspective. Of course, there are many others as well, not all of which uh, legal scholars are aware of. But in many ways, the kinds of ethnographic approaches that a new legal realist approach can bring would, are enormously helpful 
in understanding actually how law works in practice, not just in ideal, but in the everyday workings of criminal justice systems and courts and uh, even in legal in corporate law firms as they try to figure out which laws to apply and which laws are going to be relevant. Uh, this perspective is enormously valuable. So in the work that you're doing, which I'm really excited about and uh, wanting to hear more about, looks at some of these problems through the lens of anthropology and asks a little bit uh, about what, it, what happens when we use numbers, when we use quantification. And fascinatingly, you're actually working with colleagues in the law school who are themselves people who use statistics <laughs> and numbers and economic theory. How's the, how did that happen, and what first drew you to the study of indicators? Well, I, I began actually theoretically from a perspective coming from Foucault's work on the power-knowledge relationship. And as I looked more at global governance, it was clear to me that there are forms of knowledge that are fundamental to the way global governance works that are based on measurement, metrics. And I thought for a while that life might, we might have a better social science understanding if we didn't use only metrics. But it seems clear to me that this is an important part of the knowledge that we have. But I you mean that metrics are an yes. important part. Mm -hmm. So that unlike, perhaps as anthropologists, there might be a tendency to just say, well, they don't do the work we want them to do, so throw them out. Right. And your perspective and is different. I'm saying that this is a kind of knowledge that we are living with that has been increasing in importance, and that what we need to do instead of rejecting it out of hand is to understand what it does and what it doesn't do, its strengths, its limitations, there are important benefits to be gained from measuring things and understanding problems. It's also important to recognize the costs of not measuring things, things that get neglected or left out, and the politics behind the whole process of counting things and measuring them so that they get then transformed into things that look objective and fact-based. And yet, the very process of deciding what to count and how to count and what to make of the numbers once you've collected them is actually a very political process with lots of interpretive work that goes on. And we need to really understand this, particularly when it becomes the basis for uh, regulatory structures, for deciding what kind of uh, governance should take place, for making decisions about who, which countries should get foreign assistance, for deciding whether or not a country is dealing sufficiently in combating its trafficking problem, in talking about how to do development work. So there are many different domains of social life, particularly at the global level, that are increasingly being governed by numerical indicators. But they're not taken with sufficient attention to what goes into their production. And that's really what I'm interested in. But the power knowledge framework is, that they exercise power because they construct a kind of vision of the world, and yet they are themselves produced by certain power structures. Not everybody gets to produce indicators. Not everybody has the resources to gather data. And so there's a north-south division, among other things. So and north-south, you're talking about the global north, yes. right, which is Europe and the United States. Right. 
and then the global south being developing what we used to talk about as developing countries right, right. in Africa e exactly. and Latin America. And typically models for quantification for counting things are developed in the global north and are relevant to the nature of social life in the global north, but then they're presented, they're sent to and used to measure the global south in ways that may or may not be appropriate and may actually lead to misleading impressions about what's really going on in these countries. And uh, this is sort of one of the things that has concerned me about the uncritical use of indicators. And let's just step back for people who, when you, we say indicators, have no idea what we're talking <laughs> about. And indicators being numerical metrics for just measuring all kinds of aspects of, of social life and of people's lives, right? That's right. There, there's a whole range of these kinds of indicators. There are some that are widely used and known for in international governance, such as the Human Development Index, the GDP gross domestic product indicator measure. Uh, there are ones that have been established for a long time, like the Freedom in the World Index, which measures freedom of every country in the world. Um, more recently, there is something called the Global Slavery Index, which measures the amount of number of slaves in every country of the world based on fairly problematic data, as far as I can tell. So these are all ways of simplifying the complex variations among countries and classifying them in various ranks and orders. Uh, there's a relatively new project called the World Justice Project, which is measuring the, the rule of law. And now and let's I believe just say 113 what, countries. And by rule of law, which is obviously kind of a complicated idea, um, can you say a little bit more how you think about it and how the people measuring it think about it? So defining the rule of law is very difficult, and this is fundamental to any kind of indicator which claims to measure a concept. And of course, how you decide what that concept is and what constitutes that concept and then how you translate those ideas into things that are countable is really deeply difficult and it is a matter of interpretation and ultimately can be a source of politics about what you think is relevant to Kant and whatnot. The rule of law index of the World Justice Project has originally 16 factors and each of those is measured according to a scale. And then these are put together in what are called spider diagrams, which are a little bit difficult to read, but they are also then converted into ranks. Uh, and they include things like access to justice, mediation. I don't actually know what all those 16 variables are, but it's quite detailed. And unlike a lot of indicators, this one has data gathered by the organization itself. So it's able to get targeted data, doing surveys on people's ideas and use of the legal system. And just to put that in a familiar frame, we can think about the law school rankings, which um, you could ask, you could go and ask your uh, questions yourself and try to collect data yourself, or you could rely on the data that the law schools give you. And over the years, we've found out that the law schools don't always give you the data you would collect if you were there because they'd like to they'd like to do better in the rankings and okay. I suppose countries can do that as well when they're 
providing data for, uh, for rankings yes. of various kinds. Yes. I mean, this is an endless problem with any kind of ranking system is people figure out what the system is and they try to game the system. And there are lots of ways that law schools have tried to do this. And countries who care about their rankings will also make efforts to do it. And if they don't like their rankings in something like the Human Development Index, I've seen major debates about whether or not the data was legitimate and were they consulted adequately, so they care about what their rankings are. Uh, they may or may not be able to control the data, but there's likely the efforts to control what kinds of data get measured and what gets counted and what doesn't get counted, so they look better. And Speaking of different methods for finding things out, you're an anthropologist, and anthropologists use something called ethnography, which maybe we should explain for our listeners who aren't anthropologists. And I'm thinking about how you, your work in Hawaii, actually, and then on domestic violence, might well be the beginning of what drew you into this work, mm -hmm. because I know you've been concerned about how people measure domestic violence. But yeah. could you take us back a little and talk <laughs> about the Hawaiian research and how, did, how, yeah. you, what, how you conducted that ethnographically, and then how your methods have developed mm -hmm. as you've been trying to study indicators yeah. of various kinds? Well, so this is a little bit of a long story, but I originally was interested in a concept called legal consciousness, which is how people think about the legal system. That's one definition of it, as they use it. And I also wanted to study colonialism. So I decided Hawaii is a good example of a colonial space. And I went there to try to see how people felt about what was essentially an imposed legal system by the American state on what was a Hawaiian kingdom until 1898. Uh, and I started interviewing people in courts about what they thought about the law, but it turned out these were people in court for traffic violations and all sorts of things. I wasn't, it wasn't going anywhere. And then I found there was a women's crisis center that was working on getting women to conceptualize the violence they experienced as a crime and not as business as usual in marriages. And this struck me as a really interesting place to see how the law transforms people's consciousness of themselves. There was an active movement, there were laws being passed that targeted domestic violence per se. Women who had never gone to court before were now going to court. The numbers of complaints in the legal system about domestic violence increased dramatically from one or two or three a year in the late 1980s to 1,000 a year in 1990. So that was not a population increase. There you could see there was a consciousness change in terms of how you relate to domestic violence. And this got me interested in how do we know how often something happens? Uh, this was an interpretive process. I could see that women who had experienced violence didn't really recognize it as that. They just thought this is marriage and they would go to the support group and they would rethink their experiences and then they'd say, oh, well, this is a crime that I've been experienced to. And so this then led me to wonder about numbers, right? How do these numbers get produced? I listened to a lot of women talk about their experiences of violence and they talked about a range of things from the nature of the relationship to humiliation and harassment, a whole range of social experiences, not much about the actual physical blows that they had suffered, which seemed to be less significant in terms of the sort of suffering and pain they experienced. So I went then, I went to a study of human rights, and I got interested in a project by the UN 
uh, Secretary General to come up with a way of measuring violence against women globally. And, and this is, just let me, this is fascinating that, uh, that you're, so you're living in Hawaii and doing kind of more typical anthropological work of living for a while, staying for a while among the folks that you're trying to understand, letting mm -hmm. their concerns guide your framework rather than imposing your framework on them, right? Yes, and, yes, absolutely. And so I, I guess, it, you know, I looking back on your work, I can see you almost always do many methods when you're studying, whether it's neighborhoods in the United States or Hawaiian um, law and legal consciousness or, or domestic mm -hmm. violence. Um, so, it, so your methods when you were in Hawaii included what we would call ethnography, right? right. That is, yeah. I also did some interviews. I interviewed both the men who were batterers and the women who experienced the violence. I interviewed a lot of judges and police and um, social workers and, and medical people. I went to meetings where things were happening, where there were discussions going on about how to deal with this. I sat in on men's batter treatment program meetings as well as women's support groups. Uh, and I went to court a lot to see what happened there. So it was sort of observing in many different places and then interviewing key actors uh, over time. And so also looking at legal records, as I recall, too. Yes, so yes. I also began this with a historical study of a whole series of, of court cases that were record from this town that had been recorded and preserved starting in about 1850-60, lasting to about 1910. I couldn't find any more recent records, but I did a statistical analysis of these records to see what were the problems and who were the people involved and how did they did they have a lawyer or not? Did it make a difference? So there was a quantitative piece to this study as well. So, so what a rich way to approach things, really, that you're, you're adapting the method to the question you're asking. And so if you want to know about the distribution of cases or who's bringing them, then you use numbers. It, but you're also asking people about how they understand their own situations. And you're also watching them, because not always uh, are people in interviews able to tell us enough about how they're actually behaving or how the whole social situation is working mm. if we aren't there to watch it as well. So you're watching in court and you're interviewing people as well. And that's a, you know, that's a very rich combination of methods for understanding law on the ground. And now you're telling us you moved to the UN. Well, this has got to be a whole different scale of problems <laughs> to to study. It is. So, yeah. so, and I, but I think the fact that I had this ethnographic background made a big difference in terms of how I understood this UN process. Because what I was doing was, again, a mixed method, but fundamentally ethnographic study of how exactly a way of measuring violence against women developed after the Secretary General asked there to be a way of measuring the frequency of violence against women around the world. There was a major report in 2007. The Secretary General asked the UN Statistical Commission, in collaboration with the Commission on the Status of Women, to come up with some way of measuring. And having this background and recognizing the complexity of the, of the phenomenon and the way women talked about it, I was really interested in how on earth there would be possible to develop a global measure of this problem because it's very much grounded in relationships and ideas of marriage and kinship and gender and, 
and each woman talks about this in terms of her trajectory of her relationship and her fear and so on. So the Statistical Commission was interested in coming up with a readily countable phenomenon and one that would be appealing for the national statistical offices who were supposed to carry this out. So what they did was to simplify this concept to reduce it to the very kind of bare bones piece of asking, they developed nine indicators, which really focused on the frequency of the experience of violence, the severity or not of it, the perpetrator, who this person was, and whether the violence was physical or sexual. Um, and the relationship question was really, is this an intimate person or not? So what they did was to take the whole complicated world of violence against women and convert it into a dyadic relationship, focusing on the woman and the perpetrator. They also focused on women. I asked why just women, and the answer is that's what the agenda was. You know, it couldn't be done people, but of course we know that it's not just women who are vulnerable to these forms of violence. It is also men, too. So I looked at that simplification thinking about what's it going to mean when that is the global mechanism for studying violence against women and are there limitations and what kind of information can be gathered um, and is this a satisfactory way of really defining the problem and it was clear to me it missed lots of things that I had seen when I was doing my ethnographic study of these women who had experienced violence in Hawaii. What a dilemma, too, right? To you know, you need to measure things on the one hand. Right. Um, on the other hand, I can already think about the way someone who's been battered might respond to ask, being asked, "How many times were you hit?" Or, yeah. you know, "How hard were you hit?" Or, you know, that that's a, uh, may not be an intuitive way of assessing her experience. Well, I, the thing that I thought was most unfortunate about this set of indicators is that they chose not to ask about fear. And it seems to me the thing that is most important to understand is how much do women come to live a life of fear? But the statistical perspective is that this is too subjective. You don't know what it means. And so they decided to focus on things that seemed more countable. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why they focused on these variables like frequency and the nature of the act. And in, they struggled to define what was severe and moderate violence. And they focused on what the particular act was. Was it a hit? Was it a threat with a gun? And whether or not there were aggravated consequences. So was there an injury or not? But it's very hard to measure. If you ask, did you go to the hospital as a way of measuring injury, some countries, there are hospitals around and people go to hospitals and others, they don't go to hospitals, they don't have the money, the poor. The... So this is really actually turns out not a good measure when you try to think about this from a global perspective. So message number one is if you have done the eth ethnographic work, if you've walked the, the ground where the people you're trying to measure are walking with them, that maybe you can't always assess the phenomenon in the same way, that the same questions or metrics are not going to get you where you want to go. Right, exactly. I mean, this is sort of the essence of the problem, because on the one hand, you want the numbers to show how common this problem is, and you can't be asking all these questions about relationships and fear and subjectivity and still have a global measure. Mm -hmm. 
On the other hand, if you don't really think carefully about what you're counting, you may seriously undercount the problem, and that's the other side risk. And this then brings, to the, brings us to the question of how to carry out the interview, the data collection, um, how to organize your questionnaire to maximize disclosure, to make sure that a person who has experienced violence is actually going to say it. Because when I was talking to the women in Hawaii, they might not say that they had experienced violence when the court sent them to, for help. But then they'd sort of talk about it and think about it, and they say, well, maybe, maybe I did. You know? So even their own view of this can change over time. So it's, it's actually an interpretive process in the beginning, which then becomes converted into something that looks objective and unambiguous and scientific and clear. And they are facts of a kind, but they're, they're very much sort of mediated facts by the experience of the interview. Was the woman alone? Did her male family know whether or not she was being interviewed? Did they know she was being interviewed about domestic violence? Was she afraid to say? If I'm so. reminded of the old story um, from sociology of um, training new researchers to do survey research and giving them this conundrum that in Russia, at a certain point, televisions were not legal. And so a survey researcher did go to a home and hear the TV in the background and ask, do you own a TV? And the person said no. Mm -hmm. Now what do they do? Um, and the answer is they say no, because if they say, yes, I heard the TV, they now have a kind of data that isn't comparable to what they're getting in the next house, right. where someone might say no, and you don't hear the TV, but it's there anyway. So actually what you're collecting is what people say in that situation, right. not really right. what they're doing or what's actually yeah. happening. Yes, so, yeah. exactly right. And it's impossible to get beyond that. You, you can have more and less intensive interview strategies and presentation strategies that may affect the extent to which you hear these things. In, in your TV case, if you made a huge point about how this information is not going to get back to the government, it's all very confidential, if you could get some trust, people might acknowledge having the television set. But if they don't know who you are and you just come in saying, I'm doing a survey, um, then it may be that they won't tell you the truth. And so this is a very good parallel to women's talking about domestic violence. And there are some surveys that show very low rates of domestic violence, which probably have to do with the conditions of the interview and people's reluctance to talk about it, and maybe the normalization of it. So there's another kind of ethnographic point that if you watch how people are living and hang out with them, you might see that, hey, getting socked by your husband or um, you know, by your older sibling if you're an adult or something mm -hmm. is, is part of how families relate. That's not a remarkable right. thing. Right. So. There are also interesting translation problems. If you want to say, use the term domestic violence, this may have different meanings in different places. I did some work in China where there are two different words for domestic violence, one of which is severe injury. Mm -hmm. And if you use that word, you get about a 4% ratio of people who've done it. And there's another word that means intense fighting and arguing. And if you use that word, you get 35% people saying yes. I mean, so this is hugely different. And, and it's sort of a matter of how you present the thing that you want to measure. 
which is probably why the Statistical Commission did not use the term domestic violence, because that's already an interpretive category. Uh, so they asked, they suggested asking, right, did you get hit? Did mm -hmm. you get punched? Did you get, you know, this specific acts? But that solves one problem, but it doesn't tell you how that was experienced. Mm -hmm. by the person who was a victim and whether she thought it was reasonable, legitimate, justified, frightening, did she leave, all the other things you might want to know. Yeah. So now when we last left you, you had got moved to the UN and you were looking at domestic violence. What took you your next step to other indicators? <laughs> <laughs> so I was both observing, looking at documents, and observing meetings, and talking to people, and interviewing them. And I wanted to study several different kinds of indicators. So, and I've been working in human rights, so I decided in addition to this Violence Against Women project, which involved attending meetings, interviewing the leaders involved, interviewing the Statistical Commission people, going to Statistical Commission meetings at the UN buildings. I also studied human rights indicators, which were being developed by the Office of the High Commission of Human Rights. Uh, and um, I also studied um, the Trafficking in Persons Report of the US State Department and managed to have a few interviews with the people in the State Department who are producing this, what's called a TIP report, as well as scholars working on it. And then I had a graduate student, and she and I did research in India on some anti-trafficking organizations to see how they thought about trafficking and also about how they viewed the TIP report. So in a way, now you're letting the question and what you're finding guide the place that you're going to, which is a little bit of a shift from the traditional anthropology of we go one place and we sit there and we stay there all year. <laughs> so can you maybe tell people about that move in anthropology? So I've been increasingly doing what we call in anthropology multi-sided ethnography, mm -hmm. which means that you move from place to place studying a single phenomenon, which may actually exist in multiple places. Mm -hmm. uh, and I began by going to UN meetings in New York and Geneva, where I was really struck by how similar the strategies, the practices, the ways of talking about things, and actually the people are. So the same people would go to these circulate, and the ideas circulate. And so what I was doing in each case was tracing the way this process, these ideas, moved from place to place. And since India was one of the countries that was engaged in dealing with the TIP report, I went there and I worked with people who were doing anti-trafficking work to see what they thought about it. And then I went to Washington to talk to the people at the State Department who were producing these reports. Uh, and so it means that you're looking at one phenomenon in different places. And so it, I guess we're using a form of qualitative method to get a deeper understanding of a phenomenon that leads to numbers and leads to decide decisions people are making about what to count or what to even worry about, right? Yeah. And so I was interested in really two things, is how these numbers get produced and by whom, and then what their impact is. So the TIP report, trip to India, was about how India sort of responds to these? Does it make reforms? Does it ignore it? Does it get angry? Does it make efforts to accommodate? Um, and that's an actually complicated, interesting question because on the one hand, India cares about its ranking. On the other hand, it also resents being ranked by the US. Uh, 
In the meantime, the U.S. is pouring money into NGOs doing anti-trafficking work in India. So there are people who are in favor of it, and then there are people who have a very different approach or oppose. So the reaction is quite complicated, but the numbers are a central tool for making this thing happen. And then there's money that flows from the numbers, yes. you're, you're saying. Yes. And this is not just an objective um, counting process out in the outer stratosphere. This is happening within situations where there are politics and power and people who care about different things and money flowing in different directions. Right, right. Absolutely. And, and in this case, there's both money to support anti-trafficking efforts for countries that are doing well and sanctions for countries that are doing poorly. So the Trafficking in Persons Report categorizes all the countries of the world into three tiers. And if you're in tier three, which is the bottom, uh, the U.S. government can withhold aid from your country. I think non-humanitarian aid and in the event that you're not a important security partner of the U.S., um, the countries that fall into this category are a predictable enemies list of the U.S., like Venezuela and North Korea. Um, but even some other countries, I think for a while Saudi Arabia was in tier three. And so it's both a carrot and stick approach. It's based both on numbers of prosecutions, arrests and prosecutions, so that's the quantitative piece, and also on number of laws passed. And so there is a turn towards quantification in a variety of ways, assessing to what extent countries comply with the principles of the U.S. anti-trafficking law. So now you're not just worried that they're going to miss something, but maybe that they would create something or change something in response to being measured that might um, even take resources away from something that uh, the whole endeavor is trying to prevent. I mean, right? So that um, maybe talk a little bit about this process whereby resources are being shifted so that a government can maybe make more laws um, but not enforce them or <laughs> right. you know, uh, do these activities that are, arrest more people, but are they actually the people who, who committed these yeah. crimes? Yes, exactly. Well, it turns out to be very hard to convict high-level traffickers. I mean, this whole process is imagined as an organized crime model, so you have big people at the top. They almost never get convicted. It's usually the local people right at the bottom, so it might be the madam in the brothel. But getting evidence against these people to actually successfully prosecute them is extremely difficult. And the number of people who end up being prosecuted globally is very small. Mm -hmm. Even in the U.S., it's something like 30 or 40 a year, in, in, at least in the 2014-15 data, which is the latest I looked at. Um, and some of these are diplomats who will bring a domestic worker with them and underpay them. So this is not quite who we imagine as being arrested for trafficking. Um, so, so the data is itself kind of maybe misleading. Uh, and it may also produce interesting and complicated effects. So countries may, as you say, pass laws they don't enforce. Or a country may close down its brothels, just as South Korea did. Does that mean that the streetwalkers or sex workers are better off? Not necessarily, because the brothel may have provided them a kind of safety and security, and they may then be on the street or they lose their livelihood. 
So it's not always clear that these efforts to prevent trafficking, which end up actually focusing on prostitution, are of benefit to the people that they're supposed to be benefiting. So what a complicated uh, set of problems for social scientists now and, and legal reformers to try to approach. And right. I, I'm really interested, too, if you can tell us a little bit about what it's like to work with. You have now some collaborators who are law professors or working on in economics. Th these are areas that are quite different from mm -hmm. traditional anthropological approaches, and yet you're working together as a team on these issues. And yeah. what, what's, how did that get started, and what, that, what is that like? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's sort of interesting. I, on my indicator project, I, I did the book by myself that talks about these sort of ethnographic cases. But uh, I worked with two law professors, Benedict Kingsbury and Kevin Davis at NYU School of Law. And we produced, we had created a collective of younger scholars who did case studies of indicators in different parts of the world to get a sense of what are the processes by which data is collected and what's generated and how are they used and what are the local situations like. And it, it was actually a really interesting, productive process. We got a grant from the National Science Foundation to fund a series of workshops. And we then uh, put together an edited book. But in order to do this, we spent a couple years actually having a lot of intensive conversations about how you might conceptualize this. And I think there was a lot of collaborative sharing of different perspectives on what research means and what we want to learn about how these things work. But our, our model of different case studies prevented us having to come, to, to come up with a really homogeneous approach because we kind of looked at this in different ways. But it was very collaborative and, and productive to think across these lines of social science. And, it and sounds law. like it helped, I mean, first to have something specific to focus on and second that you took time to talk with each other over a couple of years yeah. so that you, you know didn't have to just try to figure it all out at a conference or in two days or something Oh, absolutely. Like that. It takes a long time. And actually, I'm starting a new project with Benedict Kingsbury looking at the role of infrastructure of law. So we're going to build on the indicators project and then think about this in, in a similar kind of way, building a network of scholars and people who are doing various case studies and getting talking to each other and then developing a kind of larger theoretical framework about how to understand how infrastructural phenomena are regulated by law and law itself is an infrastructural system. Um, we're not quite sure where this is going to go yet, but uh, it seems like a really interesting perspective to bring to looking at international law and global governance. And so um, just like any re good research, you start out not knowing what you're going to find, uh, a, a common <laughs> complaint of some people working with folks who are more action-oriented or policy-oriented and say, uh, I'd like a study that shows X. And the, the, the answer to that should be, I can't, I, I'm going to, I'll do a study, but I don't know right now what it's going to show. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd just like to close, you talked about a research network. and. Um, Heinz Klug already did an interview for us at, for our podcast talking about the book the two of you edited mm. together. And there, there was a group of scholars of different, young to, young to more senior, um, all coming together to think about what difference it makes when you look at law globally on the ground and the different mm -hmm. um, perspectives that can emerge from that. So 
Um, I, I just, any thoughts you have on the collaboration with mm -hmm. Heinz Klug and the new legal realism writings mm -hmm. you've done from the very beginning in the first conference, I think you yeah. contributed right, something right. to these to these latest volumes. Yeah. Well, I just want to say something about this volume of on the new legal realism. This is the second volume, so we have now a really substantial body of work. This book is a collection of really interesting sort of law and society, social science studies of legal phenomenon in the, at the global level. And it was very productive to work with Heinz Klug, who I've worked with before, and has really a similar idea that you have to understand law as a socially embedded phenomenon. And I think it is a really important perspective to bring to bear on understanding the law. And it must be helpful, it seems to me it would be enormously helpful to law school graduates as they confront legal practice, where these kinds of social conditions are incredibly significant to understand. And if you're doing legal practice globally, understanding how these things travel and where they come from and how they get transformed as they move seems to be an enormously important problem. So our book on new legal realism is a great place to start if you are interested in this topic particularly at the global level. Thank you for spending time with us. And this was quite a journey from Hawaii <laughs> to, to India, but uh, fascinating. Thank yes, you, Sally. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank Francis Tung and the many researchers who are collaborating on this new legal realism project and for working to make this podcast happen. Visit NLR at www.newlegalrealism.org or on the blog at newlegalrealism.wordpress.com where new legal realists post on everything from law to the latest in jazz. You can also email us at newlegalrealism at gmail.com so if you have any interview questions that you would like to submit to us as we move through interviewing the various authors of the recent volumes, please feel free to do so. This is April Faith Slaker with the New Legal Realism Project. Thanks for listening.